turn to Philippians chapter 3. We've been chugging along in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing from jail in Rome to this church in Philippi. And we actually, last week, I decided let's slow down a little bit. You know, we're, we're going to hit some rich ground as we go into uh, the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, and I don't really, I don't want to rush through this. Uh, I want the Lord to really take his word and uh, just make it precious to our hearts. Last week we started chapter 3 and the Apostle Paul encouraged us to rejoice in the Lord. And that's a word, if, if nothing else from last week, I know I've taken that word with me. To just rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in knowing him and, and who he is. Uh, because anything else that you rejoice in will ultimately flee. It will leave you at some point or another on this side of eternity. And he encourages us to rejoice in the Lord, not necessarily even what the Lord is doing, though we do rejoice in what he's done. We rejoice in chapter 2 as we saw the emptying of God becoming man. I mean, wow, what, what could we possibly rejoice more in than the cross of Christ? And yet even in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, just rejoice in the Lord. And if you do that... I believe everything will begin to kind of come into to focus. It'll, it'll get in its proper perspective. But there are dangers. There are things in this world that will detract from us rejoicing in him. And in, in verse 2, what we see is it's actually religion. As crazy as that sounds. That the more sometimes religious we get, the less joy we'll have in our lives. The more we put our trust in religious things... You know, sometimes I pray it never happens here where you'll hear someone say, well, we've always done it this way. Now, if that's in the word, great. Praise the Lord if that's in the word. Then we always want to do certain things the Lord's way. But as a church, I think the longer a church exists, the, the, the more dogmatic we can become in the rituals of things. Uh, and so may we never just look at the rituals. May we understand that everything that we do should ultimately point to him. Uh, even when we have baptism and communion, you know, there's, there's a reason why we practice those ordinances. And it's not because it adds to what Christ has done. Nothing adds to what Christ has done, right? His last words on the cross were, it is finished. Those were one of the last sayings that he spoke from that cross. We can't add anything to the cross. But when we partake of things like communion or we are baptized... What do those things point us to? Or who do those things point us to? They point to Jesus. That's why we do them. As you take the, the bread and the, blood and, and the wine that, or the grape juice, that points you to his work on the cross. As someone's baptized in the water, it points you to what he's done on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, and your, your death and burial in him, Right? So everything that we do as believers, it should point us to the cross of Christ. It should point us to the glory of God and his son. And anything else, all these religious trappings that the church gets ingrained in at times, sometimes they have a tendency to be the end in and of themselves. And they actually take our focus away from the Lord. And that's Paul's concern uh, with, in particular, these Judaizers who were coming into the church saying, ah, these Gentiles, yes, believe in Jesus, but you better be circumcised as well. See, their faith was not just in the finished work of Christ, but in, the finish, but in the finished work of their own hands as well. And that's religion. Religion is what we do for the Lord. But no, we understand it's a relationship. It's what God has first done for us. All we do is we respond. Even as we sang praise and worship to the Lord this morning, that's our response to who he is. 
of what he's done and ultimately, again, who he is. So rejoice in the Lord. Beware of every form of religion under the sun that will detract from what Christ has done. And notice in verses 2 through 6, we saw that Paul was the epitome of the religious person. He is the epitome of it. If you want to see a good religious person, you should have looked at Paul before he met Christ. And he would have fit the bill. And yet, exactly what these Judaizers were trying to get the church in Philippi to, to be, Paul was. And yet in verse 7, we saw what things were gained to me, the things that Paul previously had held on to religiously to make him right with the Lord, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost or lost for Christ. And yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. What a beautiful statement that is. You know, if we were really chugging along slowly, we could just unpack that one verse. And everything that Paul's saying as he beholds Jesus Christ, as he, he calls him Lord, he calls him Christ, he says how excellent is that knowledge. And it's an experiential knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. And as he compares knowing Christ... To, oh yeah, you better be circumcised. <laughs> you see how it, just, it doesn't weigh. It, it doesn't even compare to knowing him. And ultimately, everything that Paul as a Jew would have learned in the Old Testament, he's come to the conclusion, it's pointed to him anyhow. So if as a Jew he would celebrate Passover, guess who the Passover points him to? Jesus. As he celebrates the holidays, they point him to Jesus. And never let, again, the religious ritual become an end in and of itself. So you may see, for example, Messianic congregations today. And they may celebrate the holidays. Praise the Lord. As long as they understand who fulfilled those holidays. And as long as we understand that they're no more spiritual than anyone else by, follow, by having those holidays. You know, I'm free as a believer. I can wear a prayer shawl if I want. Doesn't make me any more spiritual though, right? So don't go judging one another by what we do spiritually. Rather, our hope and our desire and our focus is on knowing Jesus Christ. And that's Christianity, right? Christianity is Christ. Every other thing becomes religion if you take him out of it. And so I just would encourage you, make sure as a believer, I believe this with all my heart, everything that we do and say should be centered around the gospel. You know, why do I do what I do as a believer? Is my motivation the glory of Jesus Christ? Is it knowing him? If it's not, then it sure isn't ministry. It's just a work. And that work will become grueling, and you'll lose every ounce of joy that you have if you end up serving the Lord in the flesh because it's not focused on Christ. And think about the work of the Holy Spirit before we move forward. Who does the Holy Spirit himself always point us to? He points us to Jesus. Even the Spirit of God doesn't want to be the center of attention. It's Jesus. And he points us to him. And so as we continue on, he counted all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And notice he said, my Lord. Not just the Lord. He is the Lord. But he's my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul could honestly say that. And count them as rubbish. Count them as dung. As refuse thrown out to the dogs. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law. 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so there's a couple ways to interpret this. Number one, we know that as we become Christians, as you trust in Jesus Christ, he credits to us his righteousness, right? That all of our sin, when you believe on Jesus, he died for your sin on the cross, all your sin is washed away, it's wiped away, it's clean because he paid for that sin on the cross. We also know that he credits to our account the righteousness of Jesus so that when the Father sees us, he sees Christ. We are in Christ. And if we were to try to add to what Christ has done, the picture that Isaiah paints, and I believe what Paul is saying here, is like taking a bloodied rag... I'm not going to be more graphic than that, though I could be. Taking a bloodied rag and saying, Lord, this is all the righteousness I have for you. And then over here we have the Son of God who was bruised and bloodied for us. You can't compare the two. Our righteousness is nothing. The law couldn't make us righteous. Being a good person doesn't make us righteous before God, right? If we stood before a just and holy God, we'd be undone, we'd be in trouble. But yet, through faith in Christ, his righteousness is credited to us. But, as Paul goes on with the thought here, he's not so much talking about judicial righteousness like we would look at in the book like Romans. He's talking about practical righteousness. That the law, do's and don'ts, could not change Paul. And they could not make him like God, ultimately. All the law could do was tell him what not to do or what to do, but it left him powerless. It left him helpless. So external religion cannot do anything for us when it comes to becoming more like the Lord. We need transformation, amen? We need God to change us radically. And it's not us changing ourselves, and I thank the Lord for that. (laughs) Because I can't change much in my own life, let alone even affect change on others. But it's that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness which is from God by faith. And here's where we get to the beauty. I love verse 10. There there are certain verses in Philippians that we just know if you've been walking with the Lord for a while. uh, You might not even try to memorize some of these verses, but you're just going to know them because I think that the Spirit just takes these verses and makes them so precious to us. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if, by any means, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the heartbeat of Paul's life. This is what drove him in ministry, I believe. You know, as much as Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, as much as he was called by God to deliver the gospel to places no one had ever been, I believe at the very heart and the very core of Paul's ministry was this verse 10, to know him. See, if Paul's focus was just proclaiming the gospel, it would have become pretty dry pretty soon. And he would have been like a weak man proclaiming a message, even though it's powerful. If it didn't change him, how would it affect others? You know, have you ever heard someone talk about religious doctrine and, you know, they're just reciting a bunch of facts? It's just a bunch of truth. But you see, there hasn't, there's not a connection between the truth that the person is speaking and their actual life. See, if Paul just went around proclaiming the gospel but wasn't transformed by it, I don't know about you, I don't know that he would have went through the shipwrecks that he did. I don't know if he would have made it through the beatings that he made it through. 
I don't think that he would have progressed as far as he did if it wasn't for this key fact of knowing the Lord. See, this is the, this is the motor that drives everything here. This is Paul's desire. Even after all these years of ministering, even as he's sitting in a jail cell in Rome, waiting his trial, not knowing what's going to happen to him, his heart's desire still is to know the Lord. And I believe this is his heartbeat. This is his greatest need and his longing and his desire. He's forsaken his false pride in the flesh to find and know Jesus And again, this word know, that I may know him, it's not an intellectual knowledge of facts. It's a personal, experiential knowledge of the Lord. Do you realize that demons know the facts? Like as you read Acts, as you read the Gospels, you'll see the demon's theology is actually pretty good. They know who Jesus is. They even call him Lord. And they're speaking as a fact. This is who he is. Problem is, though, they did not want him as their Lord. And therefore, that's who they've become. That's who that they are. So it's not just knowing the facts and therefore you enter into the Christian club. You know, I know Jesus died on the cross and he resurrected. And I really want fire insurance. And so I think I'll trust him. That was me for 20 years. I knew the facts. I knew about him. I didn't know him. In fact, when I was in a group of people and we would begin to talk about spiritual things and if Jesus' name was mentioned, I'd get really quiet. And I might say Jesus, you know, like, I don't want anyone else to hear. Why? Because he was just a fact. He wasn't a person. And especially he wasn't a person who changed my life. See, when he changes your life, you can't help but talk about him. It's just an overflow you know, if, on the flip side of someone who just speaks facts about Jesus, if you've ever heard someone speak, say, for example, Corrie ten Boom, a woman who went through uh, Nazi Germany in, in a concentration camp, her, her father was killed, her sister was killed, and if you ever hear that lady speak, you listen to her and you say, she knows Jesus. Why? Because it just overflows. It just overflows. When you come to know him, nothing else compares to that knowledge. And that's what Paul's great desire is here. Embracing the person that all the facts point us to. Listen, the facts are important, right? We don't want to say, well, it's all about the experience without the facts. No, we need the facts to point us to the right person, the right Jesus. Because there's many Jesuses out there. And if it's not the Jesus that this scripture he points us to, that Jesus isn't going to save you. So we need the facts, but don't stop there. Take the facts where they point you and run with them. Go with those facts. That's what he's going to get at here as we continue on. And isn't this the heartbeat of every believer to know him? Was that your desire before you knew him? (laughs) Some of us, I was running from him. I was trying to get away from him. Right? I was Jonah without a calling, so to speak. Because he never spoke to me in that manner. But I was running. And now that you know him, you think, what was I doing? How much years have I wasted? How many years have I wasted in my life running from the Lord? For what? A couple seconds of pleasure? A couple possessions that I can't take with me? I mean, what was it? 
<laughs> it's foolish now, right? We look at that and we're like, what was I thinking? I was, I was trading dung, to use Paul's language, for glory, for him. It's the ache of our souls. And we're going to see here there's two ways, I believe, that the Lord reveals himself to us in the, on this side of eternity. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This is a glorious word here. The power of the resurrection. The transforming power of the same spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Isn't that great news? That's incredible. Just think about that for a while. Let it soak into your mind. The same spirit rose Jesus from the dead. The, the Lamb of God who took upon the sin of the world was buried and death could not hold him. And the same spirit who delivers him from the power of death is in me. Wow. That's crazy. And I think about what is there for the sin that I struggle with? What is it compared to the power of the spirit of God if I really allow him to work in my life? Is there any sin that's too difficult for him to empower me to overcome? Now, again, it's not me pulling up my bootstraps and working harder. That's the opposite. It's the power of God. He's the only one that has the power to resurrect the dead permanently. The power of the resurrection. Now, if we were a Pentecostal church, I would probably really, I'd really be pouring this on for a minute. You know, you'd hear me say the word power, you know, and, I'm not very good at that, so I won't do it. <laughs> but I wish that it stopped there, if I'm being honest with you. I wish that God just gave us resurrection power and every problem that we have under the sun, Jesus is resurrected, and therefore I wish I could be resurrected on this side. And I wish I had no more struggles. I wish I had no more temptation. I wish that everything was just power and great power at that, right? But notice the second part that Paul gets to, the part that I'd rather not experience, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. We could do without this one, right? Now remember, we can't forget chapter 2 here. We can't forget, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but what? made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant, came down as a man. He emptied himself. There was suffering involved. So if I say, Jesus, I want to know you. Maybe that's your prayer. Lord, I want to know you intimately. I want to know you more. Well, if that's the case, then you're going to experience a chapter 2 of Philippians. On this side, if you want to know the Lord, there's suffering involved because he suffered. And that's the pattern that's been established. Suffering and then glory, right? That's the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. That's the pattern that the Son of God, as he took on flesh, entered into. And sometimes when I pray, Lord, I want to know you more intimately, and suffering comes, I run from that tool that God has put into my life to answer that prayer. I'm running from my own prayer at times. And at first glance, doesn't the, don't these two terms, fellowship of suffering, don't they seem to contradict one another? 
Like we think of the word fellowship, you think of acts, and you think of this blissful, perfect scenario there where all the believers were in one accord, one mind, one heart, fellowshipping one of, with one another. Suffering is kind of the last thing you think of, I, at least for me when I think of the word fellowship. I think of good, joy, you know. The bottom line, though, is that you can have fellowship in suffering. You can have joy in suffering. Remember, what's his exhortation in verse 1? Rejoice in the Lord. And so we tend to think of the joys of fellowship with God, and to pair that with the pain of suffering seems like two polar opposites, seemingly at conflict with one another. But I, I understand now they're actually twins from the same father. And we look at suffering, and many people, when they look at suffering, they use it as a means to despair, right? Like suffering comes and all of a sudden, oh, woe is me. That's my default, by the way. I'm not trying to be super Christian this morning. You know, my default, especially in the flesh, is suffering and woe. Apart from the Spirit of the Lord. Some people look at suffering as a means to not believe in God at all. Like when you hear, what, what are the common reasons why people do not believe in God? One of the most common responses is the world's suffering. Now, as an aside, as a Christian, we can say, yes, but we have a God who entered into that suffering. That he answered Job's question, do you have eyes of flesh that you can see what I see? Do you know what it's like to experience the pain and suffering that I experience? In Christ, God can say, yes, I do. And he came and he, he drank suffering more than what we would ever experience. And so we worship a Lord who suffered. And so when people tell you that, point to Jesus, right? That they have a Savior who understands suffering. And no doubt, even in our Christian experience, at times if we're honest, does it not seem like God has forsaken us if we go by our feelings? Have you ever felt that way? Notice I'm using a key word there that is felt. Have you ever felt like the psalmist that said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I think about this sometimes. If I was God, which thank God I'm not, because most of you wouldn't be here probably, <laughs> right? Because everything would be about me. And if I didn't like what you did, you'd be gone in a heartbeat. But I think about this. If I was God, would I have allowed some of those psalms to, to be recorded in Scripture? Because there's a lot of vulnerability in those psalms, right? There's doubt. There's fear. That's actually one of the reasons why I know it's the Word of God. Because it's real. It's true. See, if this was just the Word of man, every psalm would be like, praise God, shut your mouth, pull up your bootstraps, God is great, and we're not. But it's real. The Psalms are beautiful. And as I've come across people, listen, I'm speaking to you more as a spectator than as a participant in suffering. Because when I've seen my life compared to many others, the suffering I've gone through is laughable compared to the suffering of many saints. As I have sat down with Christians who have suffered a lot, the Psalms are usually one of the most precious books to them. And for a lot of my life, because I had such a, I had a great upbringing, two parents who loved me, you know, I just, I was kind of like the, had a, just a, a beautiful upbringing. And I, I disconnected with the Psalms until I began to go through a couple hardships and then they became precious to me. 
But as you encounter people who've suffered much, the Psalms become a sweet balm, a sweet incense to the Lord. And people relate to those Psalms. Why? Because they're Psalms of suffering. But here's the beauty of the Psalms. In Psalm 13, for example, when David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He doesn't stay there, does he? You see, he, he brings his feeling to the Lord. He makes his request to the Lord. And by the end of the psalm, he's rejoicing in the Lord, isn't he? And, and that's the beautiful thing of suffering. When we bring our suffering to the Lord, there's fellowship to be found there. There's intimacy to be found there. And it really doesn't make a difference. I mean, we all have different hats that we wear when it comes to suffering, right? For some, it's rejection by those that we love or misunderstanding. Some who are single, perhaps it's loneliness, despair, or betrayal. If you've ever had false accusations against you, I'll tell you, that's not very fun. I've experienced that once, actually more than once now in my life. That's one of the hardest things I've ever been through, false accusations. When people are smearing your name in the mud. Battles with sin, loveless marriages, the loss of a child or the loss of a loved one, loss of job, sickness or infirmity, financial hardship and ruin, infertility, right? Hunger. There are things that Christians throughout the world go through that we don't even have to think about. Hunger, war, persecution, abuse of all kinds, the loss of a house. I mean, you name it. There's, there, 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 obviously, there's different levels of suffering. I don't want to try to put and lump every kind of suffering under one roof. But here's the catch. Isn't it true within suffering that we do everything within our power, not only to avoid it, but to get out of it? Suffering has a way, I believe, of just showing us our utter weakness before the Lord. It brings us to a place where, I'm using figurative language here, we are just naked before God. Where we understand we have nothing, we have no resources. You know, if you're a type A personality, where you like to do. This is a hard lesson to learn. To come to that place where you understand weakness. And as Paul would understand in 2 Corinthians, that his strength is perfected in our weakness. Paul would pray three times, Lord, take it away. Take it away, Lord. Take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, weakness... Suffering, it brings death, doesn't it? It brings death to us. And sometimes it seems as if God pulls us down into a dark grave, which appears to have no hope of escape or exit. We have no ability in and of ourselves to change a situation, whatever that suffering may be. It strips us of every aspect of self-reliance. That's kind of the point. You know, I, I think as you read about Paul, I think Paul thought almost all of his life he could reach the Jewish people with the gospel. And almost to the very end, you know, I think he, because of his background, perhaps he thought, I'm the man. I'm the man. Yet Peter was the guy to bring it primarily to the Jews, right? Paul cho God chose Paul to bring it to the Gentiles. He brought him to a place where he maybe wasn't as familiar with. But it's this emptying of ourselves. Does that sound familiar from chapter 2? That God is doing in our life. He's emptying us of us. See, Jesus did it willingly. I found in my life I usually do it begrudgingly. 
I'm holding on to myself. I'm holding on to everything that I can try to hold on to. I'm having that wrestling match with the Lord. I'm like Jacob. I'm stubborn. And I don't want to let go. An author who is familiar with suffering said this. He said, suffering is a thrust, a nudge away from swollen self-intoxication, which sends me stumbling into the presence of God where joy is found. The life of true freedom and wholeness is found only on the lap of God where I most dread to go and where I most want to be. It's a paradox. See, fellowship and suffering, it's a paradox. It doesn't make sense at first glance. It's as if when Ezekiel said, he lays our cities waste and makes us desolate so that we shall know that he is the Lord. He allows things to become desolate in our life, whatever it is. Why? Not so he can make it desolate. He's not after destruction for the sake of destruction, but he's after resurrection. And in order for there to be resurrection, there has to be death first. Now, I'm thankful in verse 10 that he first mentioned the power of the resurrection, though. I think he did that to encourage us, right? He's reminded us that even in the midst of this suffering, there is resurrection. Suffering does not have the last word. Even on this side, suffering does not have the last word. And as this author continued to say, he said, Christ leads us into the wilderness of suffering to engage us there. Again, he doesn't just leave us, thank the Lord. When he meets us in the wilderness, he is the manna. He is the water from the broken rock. But he is also the one who wants us to potently feel our lack so that we cling to him. And in the dark night of our soul, this deep intimacy of Jesus Christ is found. You know, I, I don't know about you, in the, the minute amount of suffering that I've gone through, Jesus has revealed himself to me in those moments probably more clearly than any other time in my life. I would not want to go back to those moments, but I would not trade them for anything in the world. Because I, that's where I experienced the Lord's presence in the midst of my grief and in the midst of my suffering. I wasn't going to share this. I'll, I'll share this with you. And forgive me if, if I've shared this before. I don't believe I have. Um, I'll never forget my grandmother had cancer in her stomach. And um, by the end of her life, the pain was so bad that even a bed sheet on her stomach just, it, it hurt her. I don't know what the nursing home was doing with pain management at the time. Obviously, they weren't doing it sufficiently. Um, but I would go after work. I'd been a Christian for about two or three years at this point, And... Um, I would go after work and visit her. I'd read her the Psalms or whatever. And by the end, she really wasn't able to talk much. I did most of the talking or the praying. And so one day after work, I remember I, I, remember I went um, to visit her. And I went in and I saw her and there was vomit just all over her. And immediately the nurse's station was right outside. I went to the nurse's station and I told them and, and you know, the nurse went in and all of a sudden I heard code blue, code blue. And I knew what that meant. A bunch of nurses went in, they come out to me, pronounce her dead, and then they proceed to tell me that she was calling out my name before I got there, and I was too late. And um, it's just one of those moments, you know, we all experience those kind of moments. The death of a loved one, I think, is one of the hardest things that we face, right? Death, I think we know things aren't supposed to be this way. There's something about death that's just, it's uncomfortable. It's not, it's not good in and of itself. 
And I'll never forget, you know, your, your head spinning. Everything closes in on you. I remember going home to my house at that point, And I remember just crying out to the Lord. Probably in a way that I would never cried out to him before. And I'll never forget. I don't, I don't do this. I never do this, by the way. This is probably the only time in my life I've ever done this. But I remember I said, Lord, I just need you to speak to me. And I opened up my Bible. And right where I opened it up, it said, Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. And, and God is my witness. The, the presence of the Lord in the midst of my sorrow of that day was so powerful. It was so real to me. It wasn't a doctrine. To fast forward it real quick, just to maybe encourage someone here this morning, because I really wasn't planning on sharing this. Um, I wondered why. You, you ever ask that question in the midst of suffering, why? <laughs> and... Uh, Fast forward it about three years, four years later, I'm at the Bowery Mission, and I get a new guy who comes into my office for counseling, never met him before, find out, why are you here? Well, I find out that he walked in on his mother who was dead, and he couldn't get over it. And at that moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 became real to me, that he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation. Why? So that we can then take that comfort and comfort others. You see, nothing's in vain. Nothing's in vain for you because there's a fellowship in suffering that otherwise we miss. And nothing's in vain also for the ministry that God wants to use that suffering to help other people who are suffering as well. It's beautiful. It's a tapestry that God is working out in all of our lives in real time. It's amazing, his sovereignty in this. Now, there are a couple things about suffering, though, I just want to point out quickly. Number one, some, for some people, suffering is a brief season. But for some, it's the rest of life. And I just want to make mention of this, that sometimes resurrection power is not always loud and big and spontaneous. Sometimes it's slow and steady. And sometimes God's resurrection power is going to be something that girds you with strength until you see your maker face to face. And you're going to experience his power on a daily basis, and you're going to need to depend on him on a daily basis. For some people, for example, let's say with addiction, some people he just takes it away and they never have to deal with it again. Other people, it's a daily walk with Christ, depending on him daily. Sometimes we focus on other people in the midst of our suffering. Maybe they weren't there for us, or maybe they're the cause of our suffering. But could it be that the Lord who desires intimacy with you has allowed the suffering to come into your life? Maybe by focusing on other people, we're focusing on the wrong person. See, he's conforming us, as we see here. There's a purpose of this, right? Being conformed to his death, if by any means, however God wants to do it in Paul's life, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. By any means. He doesn't know the means. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die at this point. However, God decides to do it, though. He understands there's a pattern. And the pattern was set by God. And it is suffering, resurrection, and glory. That is chapter 2. And that is the, the story that's being written for us, even as we speak. Verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on 
that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Notice Paul wants us to understand something. As he talks to us about knowing Christ and the power of the resurrection, fellowship of suffering, he wants us to understand he has not arrived. You may be reading this and say, you know, that's Paul. And, and it would be awesome to be like Jesus. It would be, I'd even take being like Paul. But he wants us to understand that he has not arrived. As he looks at what he's just written for us, he understands there's a desire within him to know Christ. And then there's this reality that he finds himself in. And he's not what he wants to be. Isn't that where we find ourselves on this side of eternity? We long to know the Lord. We long to experience him. And we want to be like him. But when we look in the mirror, we see we're not where we want to be. And at times, we can get discouraged if that's our focus, right? If we see where we're at versus where we want to be, there's a conflict at play. And if we're not careful, we can actually fall into spiritual depression if we're keeping our eyes on ourselves at that point. Because you'll start beating yourself up. You'll start realizing, I'm not who I should be. There's this aching within us. Lord, I want to be more like you. I want to be more pure. I want to be more holy. I want to be like you. Why? Because I want to know you, Lord. But verse 12 shows us Paul has not already attained. But notice what he does. He lays hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He understands it's Jesus who began this work in him. He's laid a hold of him to know him. He's put that desire in his heart. And if he's put that desire in his heart, guess what? All our confidence now becomes in him. Because we realize he's faithful to finish that desire that he put in our hearts. He put that desire in us for a reason. Because he has us on a new path, a new course. In fact, Paul's going to use now terminology for a race. He took us running away from God and he's put us on a path running towards God. And that's the path that we find ourselves on. Notice in verse 13 now, again, he's going to use race as an analogy here. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He hasn't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice here that he likens again our experience to a race. And he gives us a picture of a couple things that are important for us as we find ourselves in this state of already yet not. What he shows us, number one, is to forget those things which are behind. What's pictured is a runner who's probably in first place. He's running the race and he decides not to look back. Which is a pretty good idea if you're in a race because you might end up tripping and fumbling and falling. In fact, we had a lady who actually gave us a, a visual example of that this morning. Um, I, we were joking with her that, uh, that she tripped and, and she gave us an illustration of what this looks like, and she did it in good favor. But if you look back, you will end up tripping in your race. And, and you know, in sports, there's, a, there's a, a saying. A saying is forgetting the last play. You know, I remember hearing a professional football player, and he, he was talking about what makes a professional football player great versus average. And he said, most professionals, they're awesome. They're off the charts, their ability. It's through the roof. Yeah, you have your freak every now and then, but most people, are, they're just insanely gifted. But what is the one thing that separates the good from the average? And he said, the ability to forget. If you're a cornerback, you're covering a wide receiver and that wide receiver beats you, 
you better be able to forget that last play or else he's in your head now. And when you're in your head in sports, it causes you to slow down. And now that guy's going to run right past you again. Or if maybe, you've been, maybe you're a baseball fan and you watch a pitcher. This pitcher might throw six, seven innings, no hits. All of a sudden, he gives up a home run. And now everything just comes unglued, unraveled. Because he couldn't move past the last bad pitch. Paul's reminding us, you, we, we can't look back. Not on what God has done. We're not forgetting what the Lord has done, but we're not looking back on what we've done. Paul's saying, I'm not looking back. It would have been easy for him to say, oh man, that Damascus Road experience. <laughs> Do you ever meet a Christian that all they talk about is what God did like one time in their life and it's just like that's the only thing God's ever done for them is this one thing. I'm not trying to minimize that, but we want to presently know him. And we can't live off of yesterday's revelation. We need to know him today. And not only that, if we're focused on the past, if we focus on the things we've done, the bad things, well then you're going to live in an island of discouragement. And you're never going to move forward because you're constantly focusing on, on what you've screwed up. Or if you focus on what you've done well, this, this is where we're really a mess, right? <laughs> if you focus on what you've done well, now you're going to get puffed up and now you're going to really trip. See, we really need to be at the end of ourselves. Remember what the Lord has done, but forget what you've done. But it's not just about forgetting, right? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, right? He's forward focused. Notice he also says, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He's reaching forward to those things that are ahead. He presses forward. It says a runner who strains forward with total determination, with every muscle, every nerve focusing on one thing and one thing only, and that is the goal, the prize. And what's our goal? What's our prize? Knowing him. But not knowing him as we know him today. Okay? We see him right now dimly, vaguely. One day we're going to know him face to face. We're going to see him face to face. And we could say with the psalmist, as for me, I will seek your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied. Why? When? When I awake in your likeness. See, there's a correlation here that we see happening. The extent that we know him is the extent that we become like him. When we see him face to face, that's when we're going to be fully more like him. We're going to get rid of this body that we're struggling in right now. So when we see him face to face, we're going to be instantly transformed. No more suffering. No more Luke getting in Luke's way. But until then, how are we transformed? By knowing him. And the more you know him now on this side the more you will now be being transformed into becoming more like Jesus Christ. You see how it all comes down to knowing him. And it comes down to our response, his grace. This is what God has apprehended Paul for. This is what God has apprehended us for, to know him. And as we strive to know him, as we seek him, as we respond to his grace in our life, as we love him because he first loved us, we will become more and more like him. And it's this ongoing relationship with him, this dynamic that takes place from now until we see him face to face. And that's what we press for. 
That's our goal. That's our desire. That's our end. Praise the Lord. And praise the Lord. Notice the end here. It says, it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's the one who's going to finish this work. This is his calling on our life. It's his calling on your life. It's his calling on my life. And praise the Lord that he always finishes what he starts. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your heart focused on him. Run the race that God has put before you. When you fall, by his grace, get back up. Confess our sin and run forward, seeking him. And when we seek him, he promises, we'll find him. And he'll give you the grace for, maybe it's just enough for that day. Maybe your resurrection power is slow and steady, but it will get you to that final place. Why? Because God is faithful. And in him, put your trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for resurrection power, Lord. And dare I say, we thank you for the fellowship that we find even in suffering, Lord. That you're able to strip away everything that we cling to so that we find you. You're so magnificent, Lord. We pray that you continue to reveal yourself to our hearts. We pray for those who we love, who have a religion, a form of godliness, but have no clue of the power, who have no clue of the person. Father, we pray for the salvation of our loved ones, Lord. I pray if anyone's here and has not known Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that that person's heart would just be warmed this morning with this intimate knowledge of a God who emptied himself and took our place on the cross so that we could go free, so that we could run a race, a new race, a new course towards you, Lord. We thank you that you will finish the, the part that you've started, Lord, in our life, that you are faithful, you are just, you are true. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.